welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey and I am still in quarantine and I am going to finish reading, hopefully in this episode, the third and final part of Alexandra Kolontai's short story, Sisters. So before I do that, I just want to say hello to everyone and hope that you are all safe and healthy as we watch the global economy kind of melt down in the face of this pandemic. Uh, Sitting here in the United States and listening to people in our government trying to decide whether it's worth sacrificing human lives in order to reopen the economy is really rather disheartening for all sorts of reasons. And I think we are really at this incredible world historic moment that is going to be written about probably for decades afterwards. I don't know what really to say except for that it's hard. I'm definitely feeling the kind of cabin fever of being inside and still having a lot of work to do. Uh, because I'm still teaching classes and I'm still doing administrative work for the university and I have other kinds of writing obligations and deadlines that I have to meet. But really being confined into, you know, four walls and then when you venture out to go to the grocery store or to the pharmacy, it just feels so frightening because you just don't know (laughs) where these little invisible viruses are. Um, so I'm sure everybody out there is, is, is dealing with this uh, as well. And many people are in much more precarious circumstances. And I can't even begin to imagine what it must feel like for people who have been laid off and don't know where they're going to get rent money or money for groceries. It's just horrifying, especially here in the United States. You know, we've got now 22 million people who are unemployed And that's just the ones that have managed to get through to their state unemployment offices to file for a claim. There may be so many more people out there who are suffering. And I, you know, think that I hope that this is a moment where we take a really good hard look at the real inequalities and failures of our economy. And hopefully that somehow we will change course and try to create an economy that is much more equitable and just and that doesn't leave so many people out as as ours does here in the United States. I'm really, it's just, it's such a catastrophe. And I think the pandemic is really hurting us because we have no paid sick leave and we have, you know, so many precarious workers and we have this stupid private health insurance where when you lose your job, you lose your access to medical care. So these 22 million Americans who have been laid off, many of them now have lost access to health insurance, which is just horrendous given that there's a pandemic going on. And even though the government says that they're going to pay to treat people, we don't really know where that money is going to come from. And I think many poor people who have lived in a precarious state in this country are terrified of going to the doctor because they're afraid of these surprise medical bills. There's just so many injustices here in the United States. I can't even begin to enumerate them. But 
you know, that's not really relevant, I suppose, to Alexandra Kolontai. It's just a little bit about what's on my mind these days because I'm reading, I, I learned a new word called doom scrolling, which is what you do when you are reading endless articles about the coronavirus on your phone. And I think I've pretty guilty of doom scrolling a lot lately. So I'm going to take a little break from the, the doom and gloom, which, and I'm going to read uh, the final part of the story. If you remember where we left off, this is a colleague who've come, who's come to speak to Colin Tai about her bleak situation during the period of time of the new economic policy. And she and her husband, who they who she met during the revolution, they were very much in love. He sort of becomes involved with these NIP men. And he sort of slowly, they slowly drift apart. They Their relationship is kind of faltering. He gets drunk a lot. He starts drinking very heavily, which is a co- kind of common problem in Russia at this time. He actually brings home a sex worker at some point and has sex with her in the house. And the wife is in the next room. The protagonist is in the next room listening to all of this. And she's quite upset by her husband's behavior, not surprisingly. But she's dealing with her own problems, and she comes to Kolontai, or the Kolontai character in this story, for advice. And so I'm just going to pick up where I left off in the last episode, where she's describing the kind of way in which her relationship with her husband is falling apart. So that was how we lived together, both of us going our own ways, neither of us asking questions of the other. He certainly had his anxieties, and I had mine, and it stayed that way. Then the final blow struck. Our little girl died. A few days earlier, I had been sacked. I thought that now we shared the same grief, my husband might start thinking a little more about me. But not a bit of it. Even this tragedy didn't help to bring us closer. He didn't even go to his own daughter's funeral. He had to go to an urgent meeting instead. From then on, I stayed at home, unemployed and unpaid. Of course, there was plenty to be done in the district, but as for making a living, that was more difficult. In any case, it would have been tactless for me to demand a salary with so many unemployed people around. Everybody knew that my husband was an executive and highly placed. How could I possibly ask for a salary? It made me very unhappy to be supported by my husband, especially at that time but there was nothing I could do about it. I just endured it, hoping and waiting for something to happen. How foolish we women are. You see, I realized that all my husband's old feelings for me had gone, and that I felt more bitterness and resentment than love for him now. But I kept thinking that this would pass. I imagined that he could love me again, and everything would be all right. And so I waited, waking up every morning with this hope, hurrying home after working in the district just in case my husband had come home early alone. But if he was at home, he might just as well not have been. He didn't pay any attention to me at all and would just busy himself with his work. Either that or his net men friends would come round. Nonetheless, I still went on hoping and waiting, that is, until the last incident. After that, I left him for good, and I haven't been back. It was about midnight, and I just got back from a meeting. I wanted some tea, and I put on the samovar. My husband wasn't back yet, and I wasn't really expecting him. Then I heard the front door open. That meant he'd come back. He had his own door key so as not to wake me when he came home. 
I was attending to the samovar when I remembered that an important packet had come for him and was lying in my room. Leaving the samovar, I took it to him. When I saw him, I felt exactly as I had on the other occasion. I just couldn't grasp who this woman with him could be. There was my husband, and beside him a tall, slender woman. They both turned to face me, and when my husband's eyes met mine, I saw immediately that he was sober. That made it even more intolerable, so utterly intolerable that I felt like screaming out loud. The woman looked very upset, too. Somehow, I managed to put that packet on the table calmly, saying, here's an urgent packet for you, and then left the room. But as soon as I was on my own, I began to tremble feverishly all over. As I was afraid that they would hear me in the next room, I lay down on the bed, covering my head with a blanket, doing my best to hear, feel, and know nothing. But thoughts kept crowding into my head, tormenting thoughts. I could hear them whispering, and they didn't sleep. The woman's voice was louder than my husband's, and she seemed to be berating him. Maybe she was his girlfriend, I thought, and maybe he had deceived her and not told her he was married. Maybe at that very moment he was renouncing me. I went through agony. I had been bitter, certainly, that time when he'd been drunk and brought home a prostitute, but it hadn't caused me anything like the same misery. Now I realized once and for all that he did not love me. He didn't even love me as a sister or a friend. If he had, he would surely have spared me this. And what sort of women were they anyway? Street girls, prostitutes. This girl must certainly be one of them. Only a woman like that would have come home with him for the night. All of a sudden, I was overcome with such a violent fit of rage that I was quite prepared to throw her out of the house with my own hands. I went on torturing myself in this way until dawn and didn't manage to close my eyes once. It was quiet in the next room. Then suddenly I heard cautious footsteps in the corridor. It sounded as if someone was stealing out of the room and I knew that it must be her. I heard her open the kitchen door. What could she be wanting in there? I waited and listened. Everything was quiet suddenly, so I sprang up and went into the kitchen. There she was, sitting on a stool near the window, her head bent, crying bitterly. Her beautiful long hair covered her like a shroud. She looked up at me with such grief in her eyes that I became afraid. I went up to her, and she got up to speak to me. I am so sorry that I came into your house, she said. I never knew that he wasn't living alone. Oh, this is all so hard for me. I couldn't understand. She couldn't be a prostitute, I thought. She must be his girlfriend. I don't know what made me speak, but I blurted out, Do you love him then? She gazed at me in utter amazement. We met for the first time yesterday. He promised to pay me well, and I just don't care who it is nowadays, so long as he pays. I don't remember now how we got started, but soon she was telling me everything about herself. Three months earlier, she'd been made redundant. She had sold everything, done without food and without a roof over her head for a while. She'd been very distressed because she could no longer send money to her old mother, who had written to tell her that she too was dying of hunger. Two weeks ago, she had gone on the streets where she had immediately struck Lucky. 
She made a good friend, and now she had clothes and food and could send money to her mother, too. As she talked, she was wringing her hands. I've got a certificate, you know, and I've had a good education. I'm still very young, too. I'm only 19. I just can't believe that I'm going to end up on a garbage heap like this. You may not believe this, but I listened to her talk, and I was overwhelmed by feelings of pity for her. And then it suddenly dawned on me that if I hadn't had a husband, I would have been in the same position as her, with no job and nowhere to live. That previous night, lying on my bed, I had been in such a state of agony. I was literally seething with rage about her. Now, suddenly, my rage turned against my husband. How dare he exploit this woman's desperation? And him, a conscientious, highly placed worker, instead of of trying to help an unemployed friend, he just bought her, bought her body for his own pleasure. This struck me as so disgusting that I immediately thought I couldn't go on living with this man. She talked to me a great deal more, and then together we lit the stove and made some coffee. My husband was still asleep. Then she hurriedly got ready to leave. Did he pay you? I asked her. She blushed, insisting that she wouldn't dream of accepting any money after everything we'd said to each other. She absolutely could not do that. I realized that she was anxious to leave before my husband woke up, and I didn't try to stop her. It may seem strange to you, but I was sad when she had to go. She was such a young creature, so unhappy and alone. I got dressed and accompanied her out. We walked together for a while and then sat down in a square and began talking. I told her my problems. I still had my redundancy pay, which I'd saved, and which I begged her to accept. For a long time she refused to take it, and only finally accepted on condition that I promised to come to her if ever I was in need. And that was how we parted, as sisters. My old feelings for my husband had finally died, suddenly. There was no resentment, no pain left now. It was as though I'd buried him. When I got home, he tried to make excuses for what had happened. I didn't try and contradict him. I didn't cry and didn't reproach him. Next day, I moved in with a friend. I've been looking for three weeks, and I don't expect anything to turn up. A few days ago, I realized it was becoming inconvenient for my friend to have me staying there any longer. So I went to see the girl my husband had brought home. It turned out that she'd left the previous day to go into the hospital. And so I began roaming around without work, money, or anywhere to sleep. It seems as though I'm destined for the same fate as her. And here in the story, the narration switches to Colin Ty's point of view. So this is no longer in quotes. This is no longer the woman speaking. This is Colin Ty's character speaking. In my companion's eyes, I saw so many questions and doubts, doubts about life itself. They expressed the horror, the misery, and the anguish of women living without work and without a home, facing the inexorable enemy of unemployment. It was the expression of a woman on her own, challenging an outmoded way of life. And after she left, the look haunted me. It demanded an answer from us, action, work, struggle. All right, so that's the short story, Sisters. And as you can see, 
it's a pretty bleak story for a young socialist state. Alexander Kolontai is very much condemning Lenin and the new economic policy for the effects that it is having on women. And after all of the struggles and all of the ways in which Soviet women, Russian women, had supported the revolution and had supported the Bolsheviks, the introduction of the new economic policy and this idea that women should be dependent on their husbands, especially if their husbands had jobs, was a total betrayal of Russian women from Alexandra Kolontai's point of view. She was very, very upset by this. And this, this story of this young 19-year-old girl who becomes a sex worker in Soviet Russia and the wife of this nep man becoming sisters, right? together sharing their misery, their unemployment, their inability to support themselves, is a real indictment, I think, of the early Soviet regime, of Lenin and the new economic policy. And as I mentioned earlier, this was a very controversial story. Kolontai's colleagues did not want to hear that Russian and Soviet women were being forced onto the street, homeless, unemployed, forced to turn to sex work in order to meet their basic needs. This was not supposed to be what the socialist first world's, you know, world's first socialist state was to provide for women. And yet it was the reality. And Kolontai saw it. She was very sympathetic to these women. I think, interestingly, she portrays these the the young sex worker in a very sympathetic way. She portrays the wife in a very sympathetic way. She is clearly very outraged at the way that things have turned out after the introduction of the NEP, as I said. And I think that what we have to understand here is that revolutions and massive upheavals don't always turn out the way that they're supposed to. And when they start to fall down, when they start to crumble from the inside, when people become victims of these upheavals, Kolontai thought it was her responsibility as a member of the party and as a representative of women's issues and as an advocate for women's rights to speak up and actually say, hey, this is not okay. This is not what should be happening. But nobody, by the time she does speak up, the words and her policy suggestions and her position is, is there's no longer any sympathy. The, the, the Bolshevik men are largely concerned with rebuilding the economy and launching industrialization. And if there are some victims, that's just the price that we have to pay. And so I do think that this is a, a really important story because it shows that Kolontai was willing to critique her colleagues. She was willing to point out the ugliness of what was happening in the 20s in Russia and the failed or broken promises to Russian women. And I think that that got her, you know, obviously it gets her in a lot of trouble. She ends up being sort of exiled into diplomatic service for the next few decades. But this is a moment where she is taking a stand or trying to take a stand. And she writes this as a short story to, sh to, to explain that this was not the ideal. This is not what should be happen happening in, in Soviet Russia. Women should be able to have employment. They should be able to take care of themselves. The government should be finding them jobs, despite the fact that, you know, they're trying this new sort of more marketized way of, of building socialism. 
So that's it for this episode. I may actually, I'm going to desperately try to coerce my daughter to come on the, the podcast as a, as a guest. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this story and certainly we'll talk about what's going on in the world today. But as always, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep up the good fight. Bye.